are effectively acting as a guardian for someone's baby. And that means that, you know, when you're taking on that responsibility, it is a lifestyle choice. It's an always-on type of situation. There's a lot of pressure. If you're going funding round to funding round, there's just, it's constant, I suppose, pressure, right? That you have to be able to absorb and it's not the ping pong tables and pool tables and, you know, parties in Ibiza type story, which is the dream you might get sold. That is not the reality on the ground. Hey, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan. In this show, I chat with folks who work in growth. But the show isn't about their favorite tactics or strategies or growth playbooks. There's enough content about that stuff out there from other folks. This show is about the personal challenges, career adversity, and self-doubt that come when you work in growth at early stage companies. My guest today is Brad Feller. Brad's got a really impressive background. He's a five-time head of growth. He's worked at a range of different size and stage startups over the last 10 years, and he's been a big part of the London growth community. I was excited to have him on the show because he was willing to be extremely vulnerable about the mistakes in his career. In our show prep, he actually wrote out, my pain should be your listener's gain, which is really the ethos of this show, to normalize and explore the mistakes that we all encounter and the adversity that we all encounter in our careers so that we can all learn and get better from it. We talked about two really interesting and challenging moments in Brad's career. The first is when his wife was pregnant with their second daughter. He was working in an early stage startup and his founder was putting all kinds of pressure on him to prioritize the business over his family obligations. And so I suspect listeners to this show may be in not necessarily the exact same situation, but might be balancing other obligations in life, a pet, a family member, non-work interests, hobbies, obligations. And so Brad talked about how he balanced that pressure and what he would do if he could go back in time. The second thing that we explored is the immense pressure and anxiety and unease that comes when your title is head of growth and the company isn't growing as fast as it could. Brad shared his story and we talked about what he would do differently if he could go back in time. It was an honest and a vulnerable conversation and a fun convo. Brad's a lot of fun to chat with. Let's hop right in. I think you're gonna love this one. Prior to getting into this world, I started off at an agency. It was about 20, 25 people when I joined and it was a performance marketing agency, paid search but it was taking a different take on paid search. It was downloading all of our clients' data into a couple of databases. And we were running Hive queries on all of these accounts. So we were treated as analysts first, rather than what a traditional PPC was then, was you know someone that would get into the interface and play around and, and make some changes. But what I loved about that was firstly, we were growing incredibly fast because the world at the time was really adopting paid search as a channel, bigger brands, or at least in this part of the world. The coach and ethos at the business was that we are analysts and account managers, if you will, rather than. So that was the sort of first taste of just building something and being part of that process. But actually then what really got me interested in startups was I started taking on some accounts which were smaller businesses because I enjoyed that one-to-one -one interaction with folks. And what I found really rewarding was working directly with the leaders within those businesses to try influence change, to try help them to realize their dreams. And then I got bit by that bug. So the first opportunity that came up was a growth analyst role at a 
um, the world's largest e-commerce marketplace um, in the world, I believe, or at the time in the world called Lyst, L-Y-S-T. And I joined there and that was the first sort of go. But at the agency, I had seen it go from 25, let's say people all the way up to 250, expanded to multiple countries, revenue was incredible, and all those sort of things influenced me. So as you get going, startups are hard. Early stage companies are hard. And the world that you and I operate in is a difficult world. I'm curious to know, has there been a pivotal or impactful person or moment that's impacted your career journey? Yeah, there's been a few, you know, uh, positively and negatively for sure. But let's focus on the positives. Yeah, I'll ask about the negative in a minute, but let's start with the good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think on the positive front, there's been a couple and there's been a couple of people at different stages of my career. In the earliest stages, there were more mentors who used to just keep me in check, remind me of the realities of a startup. I think a lot of folks join startups with that dream of buying a boat, right? Retiring before they're 30, all that type of stuff that often founding teams have to use to sell the role because who wants to join a business you don't know about? Well, in particular, one gentleman, I won't mention his name. I'll mention another one's name. He was very helpful in just reminding me that you've got to understand the realities of the context that you're in. Just to double click on that, what does that mean? Does that mean, hey, just as a reminder, this isn't a get rich quick kind of a thing. This is, this is a business and we're going to be here for a long time. Or does that mean something different to you? Yeah. So two things. It's that it's not a get rich. It's sort of almost a lifestyle choice, especially the earlier the business, you are effectively acting as a guardian for someone's baby. And that means that, you know, when you're taking on that responsibility, it is a lifestyle choice. It's an always on type of situation. There's a lot of pressure. If you're going funding round to funding round, there's just, it's constant, I suppose, pressure, right? That you have to be able to absorb and, and it's not the ping pong tables and pool tables and, you know, parties in Ibiza type story, which is the dream you might get sold watching shows like the start, you know, these types of shows, that is not the reality on the ground. And how about one of the later people? You mentioned uh, one of the earlier pivotal people in your career. How about one more recent? Yeah. So one more recent um, is a chap called Stephen. He was a founder a couple of startups ago. And he, to this day, remains a friend and a mentor as well. And I think a couple of things that he did for me and continues to in many ways is put a lot of trust and faith in me as an individual. Sometimes, you know, people's imposter syndrome, uh, the force is strong amongst some, but he allowed me to express myself and really gave me that freedom to explore opportunities, um, encouraged me not to be fearful of exploring opportunities. Fear of failure was completely removed. But what he also, I think, embodied was the idea that, you know, ideas are easy and it comes down to execution. And at some point, you've got to execute. And that's something I've, I, I carry with me as well to this day, which is earlier in my career, I loved a good idea. I could, you know, ideate with the best of them. I probably still can. But when it came to executing, I was probably less strong, right? Whereas today, I feel like I can 
prioritize the ideas I can actually execute on and then execute on those at a high degree. I put a lot of that down to his influence on me. How did he give you that? Like, was there a phrase that he would always say or did he actually just pull you aside and, and sort of laid it out for you? I think um, a couple, right? So his style of management was very different to many others. So for example, I had my case study type interview with him in a pub. And after two pints, three pints, four pints, he made me start presenting. So I don't know if you drink many pints where you are, but you know, four pints down, it's, it's touch and go. And then afterwards, he closed the laptop, um, said he's heard enough, and um, let's get to know each other. So more pints sort of kept going. I'm surprised I remember a lot of it. But it started there, which was, okay, I could act in a sort of formal, professional way, or I can be honest and open and truthful with you. Think candor, but not radical candor, or maybe more on the constructive candor French. Huh? But what he had was honesty, and I knew that that honesty came from a deeply positive place, a very healthy place. And I think that was just the general relationship. There wasn't tiptoeing. Um, when it was you know, one-to-one -one time, we didn't talk about work per se, necessarily. It was about our relationship, the dynamic. It was about my dynamic with team members. Um, and of course, how I was getting on with the day-to-day. -day. These types of things, I think, uh, went a long way for me. It may not work for everybody, but for me, breaking down those, I guess, professional walls, barriers, and getting down to the individual helped a lot. And so feedback was really a part of your relationship from the very first meeting is kind of what I'm hearing you say. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether it was feedback on the case study about me and my background and his anxieties around hiring me, all these types of things at all. It was from sort of point zero, if you will. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that. Making me reflect on someone who had an impact in my own career and we had a very similar relationship. There's something special when you can kind of put away the script and all the formalities and just kind of talk. And when you do that from the very beginning, it creates this really vulnerable, honest place for both of you to do great work. Um, and I got to ask, is that common to be drinking four or however many pints you drank in a pub in an interview with your boss? Like, is that a common thing in England? I think it was the second interview I've had in that sort of context, but not as, you know, maybe a, a one beer sort of thing. But for him, it was at the time. He's a very professional Irish guy. So I think he was actually, he wasn't drinking pints. He was drinking white wine spritzes. So his <laughs> alcohol was significantly lower than mine. And maybe that was part of his tactic at the time. Let's, let's get this guy shit-faced and uh, see what comes out. I got to ask about the flip side. So you also mentioned that there have been folks in your career that have had negative impacts. Um, yeah. Without sharing anyone's name or anything that would put you or them in an uncomfortable situation, could you tell us a little bit more about maybe the context of one of those relationships? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, again, stays with me to this day, and it was negative. So I was working for a company, a founder ultimately, right? Because that's how how I often see these, these earlier stage companies. But I was having my second child. Uh, my second child was due. Well, my, my partner's second child was due. She was quite pregnant. And I'd been at the business for about a year or so, give or take. But along with new child comes, 
parental responsibilities, going for scans, going for whatever checkups and so on and so forth. And what I found was that he really made me try to prioritize the startup over those personal responsibilities I had to the point where he'd asked me things like, you know, are you sure you should be going for this scan, for example? We've got some important stuff we need to do here. And actually, in reality, it wasn't that important, right? It's just he wanted, I think, exert power and influence over me. And you can imagine the anxiety around that time when, you know, you've got to support your partner. I've got to support her. I've got to be there. I'm not the one pregnant, but there's there's a lot of emotional support. But then I'm being torn by this person who uh, is paying my salary and is running a business. I hate to admit it out loud, right? But I didn't deal with that as well as I could have. It was um, a terrible point because you feel like your job is under threat. You feel like there is something you're doing bad. That's pretty much how he made me feel that I was the person in the wrong. I was making decisions that was harmful to the business. And that type of stuff was damaging, I'd say, right? How could it not be? And you said that you didn't handle it very well. And I'm curious why you feel that way. I think it was a confidence thing, right? I didn't have the confidence sometimes to tell him where to go and tell him, you know, what to go do with himself and where my priorities lay in life. The me today would be a lot clearer on, on those priorities, even before joining the business, right? You've got to be clear on where your red lines are and what your priorities are in life and for the business, of course. That type of stuff I didn't handle very well. Um, there were times where I didn't go to a scan because I felt so, I guess, guilty or I was made to feel so guilty about taking two hours off right in the day to go do this sort of stuff. So I think the learning there for me was certainly what are my personal red lines irrespective of the opportunity and how do I deal with folks before I join the business, right? What expect, what mutual expectations are we setting here? Because it is now, in my mind, two-way relationship. I'm delivering as much value as I'm receiving. Uh, in that two-way relationship, there has to be boundaries, right? As with any relationship. I love this takeaway. This is something I didn't know you could even really do up until very recently, which is when you accept a job, let them know the conditions that you're accepting under, more or less, and the things that are important to you in life and where work stacks up in that. Have you read the book Radical? You referenced earlier in our conversation, Radically Candid. As a side note, everyone I know that read that book acted like a jerk afterwards. Like I, it comes from a very good place, but a lot of the people I know would say, hey, could I be radically candid? And I'm like, oh, you're about to be a jerk. But one of the great takeaways for me from that book, she talks about the different chapters of your life uh, and, and how your career fits into that. And she talks about having periods where you need to be a rock star and be a solid team member, but not go above and beyond and having periods when you want to be a superstar, which is that you want to go above and beyond and work the nights and weekends and go, you know, go for promotions and all those things. And one of the big takeaways for me was that I should proactively communicate to my manager, to my boss, to my next, you know, my next job or whatever, where in that chapter I was. And what I'm hearing you say is that's one of the takeaways for you here is to communicate what's really important to you, the individual, and 
what they should expect from you. And if that's the wrong fit for them, great. You both identified it way earlier. And if it is the right fit, then that's great. And you're both on the same page, that alignment. Yeah, you're so spot on. A good example there for me is um, I'm morning dad, right? Would you say you're morning dad? Yeah, the morning parent, let's say. I like to do the breakfast for my kids. I like to take them to school, do that type of stuff while they're still young, for sure. But it gets me out the house. It gets me in a actually quite a stressful place most of the time, fighting with the kids to get their shoes on. But it's something that I do. And whether I work from home remotely or going into an office, what I clearly communicate from there out is, look, I drop my kids off. That means I start work at whatever time it may be, um, let's say 10 a.m., right? Because drop-off is at 9 and so on and so forth. I don't mind working later because the mum, you know, is evening mum, if you will. So those types of things, I think, is how we balance our lives in many ways. But being honest and open about that sort of stuff, right? I use the child example because it's where my life stage is, to your point. But if your child is, uh, I don't know, at nursery, good chance is that the nursery is going to call at some point going, you know, your, your kid has puked everywhere, <laughs> you know, something like that, come pick them up. And these are things that aren't negotiable, right? I've, if I've got to go do it, I've got to go, I've got to go do it. And I'm open and honest about that type of stuff. I'm a curious guy. So working late or doing some work on a Saturday night, I don't necessarily see it work as work if I'm curious about it. So that's not a, you know, a, a big issue for me, but there's those types of um, red lines for sure. This episode is presented by AppQs. If you work in product-led growth, you know how important activating and engaging new accounts is. Turning new accounts into active users is critical to your success in a PLG environment and typically why activated accounts is a North Star metric for growth teams. It's why my team spent years focused on improving our new user onboarding experience during my time at Wistia and at Postscript. And that's why I'm so excited that AppQs is sponsoring the show. They're just as passionate about helping product-led companies fix their onboarding and their retention as I am. They're the leading product onboarding and adoption platform for web and mobile apps, and they've helped over 1,500 SaaS orgs create exceptional onboarding experiences that convert new users into power users and brand advocates. So if you're looking for help activating more new accounts, head to appqs.com slash value. They have a free new user onboarding audit, which is done by Romley John. He literally wrote the book on new user onboarding, and he's a close personal friend of mine. For help, head to appqs.com slash value. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool, basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials, getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form, which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value, creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website, and letting people play with them, click around, and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans, and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Novatic. Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos, and they're offering a free trial exclusively for delivering value listeners. Go to novatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. And so what happens next for you? 
So you're getting this feedback, your wife is pregnant, you're feeling all this tension to go to the scans, to be at work, you're feeling like you're not doing a great job at either. Where do you go from here? It's tough. It was tough because I was, I think, doing a great job at work considering the circumstances. It was, um, we were growing at circa 300% a year, which is decent, you know, not mind shattering, but most pe- folks would take it. And there was a lot of repair work that had to happen after that, right? Um, I probably lasted there another six months because then another opportunity came about that in most circumstances I wouldn't have listened to. You know, I wouldn't have had those conversations. But I was in such a, I guess, negative place, which was a place of, I guess, resentment, a place of guilt because I didn't stand up for myself. All these types of negative emotions, irrespective of how much pride and quality and, and outcomes, you know, I was getting from the work I was doing, the relationship, the trust was never going to be there again. And then there was a repair work I had to do in my private life too, right? Because these things are, you know, you're prioritizing work over your family, uh, blah, 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 right? All these things come into play. So a lot of repair work and then, yeah, moved on when... I wouldn't say it was a better opportunity. It was just an opportunity that felt like an escape. Yeah, the word escape is like one that I was thinking about in my head as you told that story. And so that's obviously how your journey there ended. But I'm curious to know, with the benefit of time and space, what would your advice be to someone listening to this that maybe has not the same story, but a different version of this story? Maybe they have a sick pet or a sick parent, or they're going through something in their personal life, a health condition or whatever, and they're feeling this tug back and forth, what would your advice be to them coming from where you're at today? Yeah. So I think what I didn't do when it sort of first started arising was pull the founder to side or, you know, arrange a chat and actually express these things very clearly on what's happening in my personal life, why it's important to me. And why I think if I can strike the right balance, I'd be a better performer at work, right? Because I'm not bringing these stresses back and forth. So the first thing is bring the topics up and have that honest, open discussion. You can look the person in the eye. Uh, if she, for example, is not receptive to that, well, then that's the point where you can say, well, she is uh, telling me that if I choose A over B, then this might not be the right thing. And then you can make those decisions. But if you don't bring it up early and try stamp it out very early, you're going to find that you bottle it up, right? And then six months or whatever go by, a year go by, and um, there's just going to be a, a damning negative effect on your mental health, which is very hard to recover from sometimes. Yeah, or you just feel resentful and it just simmers in the background for a long, long time. And so as your journey goes, is it pretty smooth sailing from here or have there been other low points that you've encountered? Gosh, there's been lots of highs and lows. I'm sure you've heard the metaphor, right? Startups are like a roller coaster. Um, So there's been incredible highs, but there have been quite a few lows as well. Could you tell me about one specifically that stands out to you? Yeah, I think, and this isn't unique necessarily um, to one. You know, I worked at one startup where it didn't work out in the end. The business didn't work out. It went it went under. 
and I was an IC at the time, an individual contributor. I was titled head of growth at least. And I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to be the person that needs to drive business performance. I felt that with this head of growth title and being an IC and at this stage of business, it was up to me to figure out how to get the company to grow. And if we're not growing, if we're not expanding rapidly and we don't hit whatever milestones to get our next funding round, it's down to me. This is such a relatable thing because all day, every day, I talk to folks who are in similar positions, whether their title is head of growth or whatever, they're the person who's leading their growth efforts and they feel this crazy pressure. And for most of them, it bleeds out into the rest of their life and they feel this stress and anxiety. So I love that you're comfortable in being vulnerable to share this story because I know that there's going to be a lot of listeners who are just listening and nodding their head along like, fuck, I'm not the only one. Yeah, no, and it's this, I guess, the curse of the title in a way, right? You know, the only thing I can say is in hindsight, it wasn't a logical place to be. It's not a logical place to be. You know, that's what maybe poor mental health will do to you. But realize that, you know, a business is made up of a lot of components. Sure, you've got an important role, but everyone's role is fundamentally important in an early stage business. And when things aren't going well, you'll know you're in a good place if there are those that are helping to identify where these major issues are and they're collaborating and getting involved and supporting each other, right, to overcome those. If, you know, everyone is focused on their own little castle, if you will, it's going to be tough. And I think it's very common for heads of growth. You're absolutely right to feel the pressure of, of the world on them. And all I can say is, you know, you're doing a great job no matter what. You can look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I doing the best work I can given the resources I have available to me? And be honest with yourself and look for support around you because a business cannot live and die off one individual contribute. I agree. And I'm curious to know, what does pressure look like for you? You said, hey, I, I went through this period of time when I was feeling all this pressure. What did that look like? Can you take us back to that time? Yeah. So, I mean, again, there's been a few, of course, right? But I think at that particular time, the founders, in order to get our last funding round, we had promised a bunch of numbers. I remember actually building the investor deck and the guy telling me, can you make that look bigger? Change the axes on the chart or something. It doesn't look nice enough for our, our deck. So the reality was that we, and I was part of that, we promised or we suggested that we were going to hit, we were on track to hit these crazy numbers, not because it was born out of reality, but was born out of some sort of desperation, right? To get a, a round of funding. We closed that round, which was grace, but then what happened was we were held to those forecasts. And then you're coming in every day and you're thinking, okay, what are the big bets I can take here? What are the things that I can contribute to that are going to help us get to these fantastical like sort of numbers? Maybe they were deliverable, I'd say 99%. I'm 99% sure they were not. Um, but that still brings pressure because what you're doing is trying to deliver on something that is unrealistic. Um, so every day you're bashing yourself in terms of going, well, why can't I hit these numbers? I'm probably not making the right decisions. All those types of things come into play. And that is a true example that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. 
for me, uh, definitely. Uh, and for me, I'm even reflecting on my own career. And at the times when I have felt the most pressure, I felt like two things happened in my life. One thing is I would look at the numbers way too often. And I would just find myself staring at the same numbers, trying to search for some like hidden thing that if I could just figure it out, it would unlock a bunch of stuff. And then I would find I'd wake up in the middle of the night dreaming about the damn spreadsheets. And like, if I could just slice it one way, I wonder if I sliced it this way, if maybe there'd be something interesting in the numbers that I could explore. And like, I would literally wake up running that playbook in my head. And so I'm curious for you, what's your version of that? So you're feeling this pressure. You know, the numbers are probably not numbers you're going to be able to hit. You presented them to the VCs. Now you're being held accountable to them. What's your version of that? Yeah, so I mean, very not too dissimilar. Yeah, I'd like have a bit of uh, what's it called insomnia. So I just lie there in bed, pitch black, just thinking about everything, right? And maybe overthinking. Oh, I should have said that. Could I have done that? Could I have chosen a different direction or a different experiment? All this types of stuff. I think you start over analyzing, right? In a negative way, not in a, a positive way. Um, so that's definitely relatable to me for sure. The other is I think you start making fewer decisions that are positive because you're in that overanalyzing sort of context. You know, you start reading these like growth hacking sort of case studies, right? Where someone found one magic bullet and it's transformed. So you start looking for these unicorns. I uh, like, you know, refer to it as a unicorn, as a fairy, who knows, some magical animal rather than just grinding and you know, following the process, right? And just keep on sort of testing and being incremental with those improvements. You start looking for the illogical. You start behaving illogically. To your point, if I can only find that one thing, if I could slice it in one way, it would reveal this magic sort of uh, uh, rainbow to the pot of gold that everyone's after. Today, I'm more process-driven. I'm more calm in that sort of way, which is our processes, you know, let's think of a bunch of ideas, Let's, uh, you know, prioritize those out and we're going to run through them. We've all sat there and prioritized. So we're just going to go through the process rather than maybe we'll strike it lucky. Maybe something will happen. That's great. But let's not plan for luck. What advice would you give yourself or what advice do you wish you had if you could go back in time? There's a couple of things we touched on, right, which is having that sort of conversation with yourself about what's important to you, what drives you and what makes you happy. That's a funny old thing to say, well, what, what makes you happy, right? But I don't mean sitting at home smoking a good joint and, uh, you know, playing, playing Call of Duty or whatever all day. Sure, that's fun, but I don't think it fundamentally makes you happy. So what makes you happy and focus in on people that support that mission, your personal mission. I, you know, enjoy working and I enjoy the work that I do. And that's part of what makes me happy. But the wider context is I've got my own sort of personality, my own um, way of working um, and the people that I want to spend my time with, right? You know, there's a whole bunch of analogies of you're 90 years old on your deathbed, right? But I think there's some truth to that, which is I would give up a really great opportunity if I think the people I'm going to be around day in and day out are horrendous 
or I can't really learn and grow from them. And just I wouldn't hang out with them normally. I don't expect or want to be friends with people I work with, you know, necessarily. But I want to feel like here are people I'm excited to work with because I can develop, I can grow, I can enjoy the work that we're doing together. And I think these types of things are something I would tell my younger self who is more just job focused, right? And and a little bit rose tinted. For sure, I would, I would do that. Um, the other is find a mentor, someone like yourself early, because it's hard. It's very lonely sometimes if you're an IC, right? And finding someone that can support you emotionally, professionally along that journey as soon as you can, I think is incredibly powerful because, well, yeah, I guess you'll know more than most, right? You've either seen it before, you can be that shoulder to cry on, you can help them deal with these tough situations early. You know, you can also have more than one mentor, of course, but I think having that support structure around you is something I would encourage my younger self to do much earlier. It's mm, a great takeaway. And have there been other major learnings related to building your career in and around the growth space that stand out to you as we do a little bit of reflection here? I think uh, a good learning is remain humble, right? Even if you're at a unicorn, the reality is your contribution to that journey is just part of a puzzle. You know, so remain humble and remain curious for sure. And yeah, that curiosity, I think, is essential, right? I've always been that type of person. You could call it a growth mindset, an entrepreneurial mindset. I'm not sure. But I think these types of things are very, very useful. And it's something that technology in and of itself is not going to replace, right? It's not going to replace someone that's interested to understand what's under the hood or why something um, is. And then lastly, I think it's stick to the first principles approach. Um, I think this is a, a good place to be if you want to get rid of a lot of the noise. And if we could go back in time, what's one skill that you wished you worked on earlier in your career and why? Oh, um, the Python. I feel like programming skills are, and I played with a bit of Python. I got trained up a bit of, with it. I could run some basic scraping queries and organize some data and that type of stuff. But it is literally a language, right? Where you've got to keep up with it. So I think that is something I, I wish I had more confidence because I was developing and not to become a programmer. But again, to broaden my skill sets, right, and to broaden my understanding of uh, an ability to deliver on the fly. So I think that's one area I personally would have liked to explore more, definitely. Uh, another is probably on, well, gosh, there's lots. There's lots of areas. I'm super, you know, I'd love to have trained myself a little bit more on the design front, for example. But I think actually just at a personal level and in some ways professional being a little bit more serious when it comes to learning another language. This doesn't sound related to growth per se, because I, again, I think a lot of the skills are around curiosity, motivation, ability to you know, learn 10 years ago, plus technologies coming out all the time, right? And you just have to, you know, self-taught. There wasn't any BA in growth, right? I speak one other language, but it's Afrikaans, so not a lot of people speak it, and it's very close to Dutch. 
But the reason why I would have wanted to explore more languages, and I'm learning another one now, Spanish, but it's it's a slow old process, is because it gives me that different perspective of the world, a different way of looking at something, a different way of expressing an idea. And I think that would aid my curiosity and, and broaden the opportunities I see in front of me. And maybe for other people, something else. But um, this is what I think I would have liked to have picked up earlier. I want to ask you a couple questions as we start to wrap up here. I'm, I'm experimenting with a new section on the show called What Would You Do? So I'm going to start this question by asking, do you have Slack on your phone? I do. Okay. Do you have alerts turned on? I used to. I'm going to, well, I'll ask you this question in two different ways then. One, let's assume that you do have alerts turned on. It's 9 or 10 p.m. at night. You're relaxing. You're powering down with your partner, your family, whoever's awake, watching TV, having a little bit of you time. And you get a Slack from your CEO that says, hey, do you got a second to chat? What's your next move when you get that Slack? What goes through your head and what do you do next? Yeah, and this is me today, right? This is you today me? with alerts turned on. Yeah, I'm not answering. However... There's a lot of, you know, founders, CEOs where they genuinely my friend as well. Uh, so on that sort of point, I'd tell them off for contacting me on Slack. I'd sort of tell them, what are you doing? I know I'm busy, whatever, with something else. But if they contacted me on WhatsApp, uh, it might be different. But I think generally I, I wouldn't be answering because there's nothing on a Saturday night, at least in my type of role, right? I'm not maintaining systems, right? Or anything like that, where something's gone down, I wouldn't answer. I would just understand that there's no positive that can come of this. And if it's important enough, he'll bring it up or she'll bring it up the next morning or on the Monday. And can you compartmentalize that? Or is that going to, are you going to ruminate on that for the remainder of the time until you have a chance to connect with them? Um, I definitely think a little while ago I would have. There's that paranoia, right, that sinks in, which is, God, what have I done? All this sort of stuff starts swirling around. Yeah. Um, but the me today is just, as I said, right, there's nothing that I could have done or nothing that I can do now to fix it. Even if I did do something, that's going to change where we're at. So I can wait until Monday. I think this is part of the sort of red lines as well, right, which is where is your time? your family time, but just you time. And where is company time? Where is Brad at startup versus Brad at home, right? And if you don't, you know, of course, there's extenuating circumstances and there's caveats. But if you don't draw those lines, well, today it's five minutes. Next Saturday, it's an hour. The following Saturday is, hey, why didn't you come into the office? You know, if you give a person an inch, they'll take a, a mile, right? Um, so I think be clear with those boundaries. And Importantly, if you communicate to the CEO, look, I don't check Slack on weekends or evenings or whatever your boundary is, communicate that up front because then that manages their expectation too, right? I've messaged Andrew. He hasn't gone back to me. That's cool. He told me that he won't. And I think this is a, a valuable thing. I'm going to ask you one more, which is you talked about presenting to VCs as part of fundraising. Let's say you're presenting internally. Your head of growth. Right now, we're recording in November. A lot of people that are doing quarterly planning or you know 2024 planning. Let's say you're presenting something internally to your executives. 
You've got your strategy for the next year. You've spent a lot of time on it. You're in the presentation. It's not going well. And so what goes through your head in a situation like that? And what do you do afterwards? I think what wouldn't happen, at least for me, is it's not going to be a surprise to anyone, right? I would have consulted. I would have had conversations with people all along that way. If I've been working on it for a year, for example, or however long, it's never going to be a surprise. I'm going to be touching base with people and secretly bringing individuals into the conversation, stress testing it with them, all of that stuff. So that when it's presentation time, almost everyone in that room, or at least every senior individual in that room, any individual where this is impacting, is going to be aware of the details. That shouldn't be a surprise. If you're presenting for the first time and it's a surprise, expect things to go wrong, right? Because immediately someone is either going to want to protect their territory, is going to have some sort of feedback, all that type of stuff. But if you prepare in advance and bring people along that journey with you, then it's more of a tick boxing exercise, right? And in fact, on that note, it's not even for the senior folks, let's say. Then I would do it to the broader business because I want to bring everyone on board and take everyone along that journey. Just, you know, on that note, if something's going wrong in any circumstance, don't ruminate on it, don't sit on it, don't think you can fix it because the more it festers, the more of a negative surprise it will be once it does come to light. Be transparent, be open and communicate as regularly and as fluidly as you possibly, possibly can. It's that pre-meeting alignment. Took yeah. me getting roasted to learn that. How did you learn that? Pretty much the same, right? Pretty yeah. much the same. And I observed a sort of product director I was in the same room with. And he was a, a wily politician, let's call him that, because you could see that he did all the prep uh, work beforehand, but also the way he would say, oh, and... As Brad and I agreed on this point a little bit a couple of weeks ago, and then he'd say, you know, and as Andrew and I sort of, so he would bring people in and make sure that he positioned them in a way that they on board and they then couldn't turn around and say, hang on, I didn't agree to that. I love this. This is like a masterclass. So all that type of stuff, you know, you observe it and you're like, oh shit, I should do that. Yeah, this is a, a very smart move by him that I picked up as well. There's a few roastings I've had, especially that unexpected email, which I don't do anymore, that you send on a Friday evening just before you go home. And you shut your laptop. These things are, yeah, do not send emails. Do not communicate unless you absolutely have to pass 3 p.m. on a Friday. There's no good that can come from it. It's funny, you use the politician analogy because that's actually how when I work with folks and they're like, what do you mean I have to do a bunch of work to tell everybody what I'm going to present in the meeting before the meeting, but privately... And I, and I always say, think about it like you're a politician. You don't want to go in there and have the vote for the first time and not know how everybody's voting. You want to know how they're voting beforehand. You want to go out there and lobby. And any tough feedback where someone doesn't have your vote, you want to know it way before that meeting. And so it's funny. It sounds like you came to a similar conclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the, the I hate politics, but um, so do the I. analogy is great. Uh, if you're in a business where there's too much bureaucracy, too much politics, it's tough, right? Because then you're not actually focusing on the work, you're focusing on the politics. And But yeah, it's a great analogy. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on, sharing some of your journey, sharing a bunch of the lessons learned along the way. 
for folks who are listening, who want to learn more and connect with you, where should they go? Uh, my happy place is LinkedIn generally. So yeah, I'd love everyone to just hit me up on LinkedIn. Yeah, and let's, let's have a chat. Um, I'm a completely open book and uh, always happy to meet founders and fellow heads of growth that can help inspire me. Yeah, so that's, that's my happy place these days. Hell yeah. Well, thanks for coming on and jamming. Uh, likewise, thanks for having me, Andrew. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.